the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe that the majority of the plain people of the United States will, day in and day out, make fewer mistakes in governing themselves than any smaller class or body of men, no matter what their training, will make in trying to govern them. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Our opponents, they lip loyalty to this doctrine, but they show their real beliefs by the way in which they champion every device to make the nominal rule of the people a sham. Welcome to the Zanzizi Podcast, the Rad Dad 2023, gathered on the interwebs with my man Danger Zone. We're going in, we're going hard, we're making it happen, we're doing, we're doing fucking Teddy 2, electric mustache ride. Here we go. How you doing, Adam? Good, man. Ready. Ready to do Teddy 2. Teddy 2. Teenage Mutant Teddy Turtles. Dude, I just went and saw the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with my, my kids today, the the uh, the animated one. It was fucking rad as hell. That's funny you got that shirt on. Yeah, it's a Golden Girls mashup. You can see it. Uh, thank you for being a friend. But as uh, the four, they're, they're getting a future episode for fucking sure. Um, I love that show. I consider it. I don't know why it hasn't been rebooted personally, but um, yeah. Uh, before before we jump into it, anything you wanted to reflect on with episode one? Any corrections, omissions, things like of that nature? Oh, you know what? Actually, uh, that dude we kept saying William Seward. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name was William Sewell. Ah, okay. William Seward was Secretary of State under uh lincoln i believe so we fucked up his name so that's a that's a correction of the last episode apologies to everybody well you know there there there's there's gonna be some of that folks and if you email us zanzizipodcast at gmail.com we'll take them because when me and adam go in we want to go hard we want to cover all the things and I got to be real with you. I thought we did. A, I thought we did a decent job. It, it's it's hard to hit all the points. Like there's gonna be moments where you listen to these and you go, ah. But look, first and foremost, we are not historians. We're we're just dudes who we're just dudes who love this shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I get it. I get it, bro. We gotta be on drunk history one of these times or something. I would love to do that (laughs) if they got a stoned version because I'm seven months dry at this point and not thinking about it so much. But 
Uh, are you doing good? It's, it's Wednesday night. Yeah, doing good, man. Uh, got done with work, went down to the garden, picked about 20 zucchinis, some uh, cucumbers, and uh, cleaned all the dirt off me, and now I'm ready to roll. All right, Teddy, too. As vice president, which we got into towards the end, he was amazed how little there was to do. When he was governor and had left for any time, the press would take him to task. Anytime he would go off, uh, it, I mean, he he had a love-hate, probably, I'm going to go off and say, when it came to the press, I mean, he understood it was a tool and it was a way to get in with the public. And, you know, things like the teddy bear, things like the Rough Riders, uh, they really, echo, it was an echo chamber at the time, and he understood that, like, he was going to be characterized uh, with his big teeth and his glasses and his loud, boisterous nature. Like, he was, he was out in the public, and that was cool to him. Because, I mean, word of mouth kept him, kept him as big a figure as he really truly was. So, as VP, though, he had downtime. Like, dude went hunting, uh, visited his sick nephew, and that's no bully, as he he would say bully. He liked to say bully and delightful, and uh, <laughs> he was a... Turn of he the used 20- a lot of double uh, double negatives. I when I read yeah. some of his quotes, he always used double negatives. This uh, very proper uh, confusion in his speeches. Yes, <laughs> he spoke a bit like me, myself. I, I tend to I tend to I tend to be the guy that when I say things in my life, and you've probably thought this while listening to any podcast I've hosted. You, you have to kind of analyze the sentence for a second. I apologize. I think I've been like that my whole life. Uh, but on September 6, 1901, President McKinley was attending the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. What up, New York? When he was shot That's by... New York. Yeah. Buffalo. How far are you from Buffalo? Uh, two and a half hours. Do you like... Drive. Is, How's how's modern Buffalo? Do you go there very often? Um, I went to a Rage Against the Machine concert in Buffalo last summer. Mm. Um, prior to that, I went to uh, Owen's wedding out there. Is that where uh, Owen lives? No, they live in Oregon, but uh, his wife is from Buffalo, so they had their wedding out here. Oh, cool! And actually, he invited me to be in the wedding, so uh, I was one of the groomsmen. So, yeah, I've been to Buffalo a few times, uh, a handful of times. It's a nice place. I I, I like Buffalo. Nothing right nothing bad to say. It's all right along 90, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany. So You don't really, just, you're not like a huge like NFL guy. You're more of a college football guy, right? No, man. You know I'm a big Chiefs fan. Well, oh, oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. I was thinking for some reason I was thinking of basketball in my head. Um, no, yeah, I'm a bigger college basketball fan than the NBA, but yeah, no, die diehard Kansas City Chiefs fan. Always like I want to clarify that for my entire life since I was a little kid, nine years old. So I didn't just jump on the bandwagon. 
I mentioned NFL. We'll bring that, <laughs> that. That'll come back around later, I promise. Anyway, so McKinley's shot. He gets shot by this anarchist, this, you know, this dude who heard voices in his head. Teddy actually felt bad for the guy. Um, both. I mean, obviously McKinley and, but the anarchist even. And, you know, people who hear voices in their head, they need to uh, see therapy. And if, if the voices are... Are, are loud enough to make you do something crazy like shoot the president. Um, this is the third president to be shot at and uh, or assassinated, which is fucking scary. Uh, right. So it appeared that McKinley would recover, so Roosevelt resumed his vacation in the Adriatic Mountains when McKinley's condition worsened, Roosevelt rushed back to Buffalo. McKinley died on September 14th, and Roosevelt was informed while he was in North Creek. He continued on to Buffalo and was sworn in as the nation's 26th president at the Ainsley, Mount Wilk at the Ainsley Wilcox House. McKinley's supporters were nervous about the new president, and Ohio Senator Mark Hanna was particularly bitter that the man he had opposed so vigorously at the convention had seceded McKinley. Hanna is kind of like the dude that uh, Roosevelt would butt heads with, and in fact, at some point, Hanna dies, and Roosevelt was like, fuck. That was the dude I like to like. He was a guy that he he saw the the um, the worth in having somebody to butt heads with, especially politically. Like I'd like to think that guys like um, you know Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell will get together and play fucking chess or cards. But and I'm sure McConnell's got a good poker face. I've seen it and. So, you know, you like to think that the guys that you... I, I, I personally, I, I would rather sit down with somebody whose politics I would be able to have some sort of a debate with rather than somebody I'm just going to constantly agree with. If you get what I mean? Like, there's... Like, one yeah. of our... We, we have a mutual Navy buddy that we kind of disagree with, and it's fun to me to be able to kind of volley back and forth because I love that. I mean, why sit around and just nod your head in agreement the whole time when you can sit and, like, really dive into, you know, politics and, like, the real truths of it or or anything? I mean, not just politics. Yeah, because it stays respectful. You know? Exactly. It, it, it's it's The dialogue is respectful. Exactly. It's not, you know, do, being done over Twitter or, you know, the Internet. You know, it's where everybody's tough behind their keyboard and... You know, face to face when you can have a good conversation with somebody and disagree, you know, at a level of understanding, then that's good dialogue. It's constructive. Exactly. And that's something that severely lacks. I might have mentioned this in a previous episode, but it severely lacks. And in, in today's uh, political discourse, uh, everybody is just out to just insult and just kick each other in the nuts as hard as they can. And it's just, it's just, we need to get back to, Good, respectful respect, politics. Respectful conversation and discourse without slaughtering people's reputations because, I don't know. Like, R.I.P. Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, who just died. 
I, I have no problem with a president who is a bit of a philanderer or a bit of a, you know, somebody who goes out and does something that any human being has been fallible at. I don't care if he likes Beyonce's Instagram when she's showing her butt or whatever. People are people. Men are men. Women are women. People are people. Who cares at the end of the day? Uh, and yes, there will be a Pee Wee Herman episode eventually. So, Roosevelt assured party leaders that he intended to adhere to McKinley's policies. Again, Republican Party was very, very entrenched with uh, the corporations of the day. And he retained McKinley's cabinet. Nonetheless, Roosevelt sought to position himself as the party's undisputed leader, seeking to bolster the role of the president and position himself for the 1904 election. And I think at the time, he was pretty... Um, he was excited to be president, but I think because he wasn't fairly elected, there was a bit of, like, shit, am I really going to be able to slide into that position? Shortly after taking office, Roosevelt invited Booker T. Washington to dinner at the White House. This sparked a bitter and at times vicious reaction among whites across the heavily segregated South. I, 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 you have to really, I mean, at the time, this was a big deal. I know today it's like, yeah, of course, obviously, a, a well-educated uh, African-American, like, doctor like somebody super smart at the time like yeah we want we want the president to speak with these people but like it, today the equivalent would be like if i it, it would be like if um alexandria ocasio cortez like said it was terrible a black man got together with the president back then if that makes any sense again you might have to pick it's like it the whole everybody was against it like to him he's it seems obvious like yeah obviously i'm going to talk to this intelligent person who i can you know sit and talk with but like it was still so stupid and segregated like there was some senator who was like here down south we still got ropes and raffles and it's like jesus guys you lost shut the fuck up calm there's still there's still senators from the south <laughs> saying shit like that and they were democrats dixiecrats as was and he liked to call them the lily white south anyway it was bad so i mean just to get on my little step stool for a minute yeah the uh the jim crow uh, era it was right at the same time it was just segregated across the entire country you know blackface entertainment was very popular with everybody um it was just a disgustingly racist time in our in our country um there was a lot of uh trying to oppress you know black communities setting up literacy exams to vote and stuff like that and there was just a lot of bad shit going on so anyway anyway so even though the press reacted that way roosevelt reacted with astonishment and protest saying that he looked forward to many future dinners with washington upon further reflection roosevelt wanted to ensure that 
he had no effect on political support in the White South, and further dinner invitations to Washington sadly were avoided. Their next meeting was scheduled as typical business at 10 a.m. instead. For his aggressive use of the 1890 Sherman Antitrust Act compared to his predecessors, Roosevelt was held as the trust buster. But in reality, he was more of a trust regulator. Roosevelt viewed big business as a necessary part of the American economy and sought only to prosecute the bad trust that restrained trade and charged unfair prices. He brought 44 antitrust suits breaking up the Northern Securities Company, the largest railroad monopoly and regulating Standard Oil, the largest oil company. Presidents Benjamin Harrison, Grover Cleveland, and William McKinley combined had prosecuted only 18 antitrust violations under the Sherman Antitrust Act. Bolstered by his party's winning large majorities in the 1902 elections, Roosevelt proposed the creation of the U.S. Department of Commerce and Labor, which would include the Bureau of Corporations. While Congress was receptive to the Department of Commerce and Labor, it was more skeptical of the antitrust powers that Roosevelt sought to endow within the Bureau of Corporations. Roosevelt successfully appealed to the public to pressure Congress, and Congress overwhelmingly voted to pass Roosevelt's version of the bill. Which is good. I mean, overall, I'm, I'm glad he was a buster. I, people will debate all the time when it comes to, like, we need less regulation. We need less. But, like, yeah, and I, and I mentioned in the last episode about, like, safety and things like that. We, we're, we'll get into it a little bit, especially when it came to food. Um, there were big issues with food at the time. Uh, yeah. Things were scary. I mean, people were getting sick, going to the butcher, and uh, the meat packing was kind of a, uh, the meat industry was kind of an, uh, its own, like, sinking, like, just ship when it came to the, the bullshit they were trying to get away with. Uh, in a moment of frustration during this time, uh, House Speaker Joseph Gurney Cannon commented on Roosevelt's desire for executive branch control and domestic policy making. Quote, that fellow at the other end of the avenue wants everything from the birth of Christ to the death of the devil. These guys got riled up, man. I mean, we're right around H.H. Uh, H. Holmes times, really. I mean, another book I would recommend to people to read is uh, The Devil in the White C- City about the World's Fair in, in Chicago. Uh, people were... Uh, the, the economy was crazy. And regulation was just something that needed to happen because people were just making fucking money, hand over fist, going crazy. Um, and Roosevelt's willingness to exercise his power included attempted rule changes in the game of football. Told you I was going to bring it back from the NFL. At the U.S. Navy Naval Academy, he sought to force retention of martial arts classes and to revise disciplinary rules. Man, if we were doing some kung fu kicks on a the deck of a carrier, that would be cool as shit. Yeah, get out of karate, here, Karate Kid carrier. <laughs> I mean. You get the guys to pay attention if they put them in like uh, what do they call those 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 outfits that that uh, senseis wear? You put on your 
ghee or whatever. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, he wanted to regulate stuff in the football. I mean, he could be progressive if you think about all the concussion shit that we have going on now where like football players are like 40 and their like brains are like that of an 80 year old um he even ordered changes made in the minting of a coin whose design he disliked and ordered the government printing office to adopt simplified spellings for a core list of 300 words According to reformers on the simplified spelling board, he was forced to rescind the latter after substantial ridicule from the press and a resolution of protest from the U.S. House of Representatives. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a big man entering to the right. His name, Bill Taft. The 27th president, and also a Republican, was a friend to Roosevelt. His cabinet referred to him as Roosevelt's bison. He was 320 pounds and uh, six foot tall. He's a big boy. And uh, we, we, we were texting about this because I was thinking about... I, I cannot imagine the, guy, the, the, the farts this dude ripped. Um... <laughs> It, it must have been scary. I mean, honest honest to God, especially at that time with the bad meat. I mean, this guy slams a burger and, uh, I don't know, makes a quick fourth meal run. You better be exiting stage left when this dude drops a deuce. I'm just going to say. Uh, he had the, the bad meat and the uh, baked beans from the Spanish American. <laughs> dude, I'm just saying. I... My money is on Taft when it comes to the fucking riding in the carriage and you're downwind and this fucker just ate <laughs> fucking Salisbury steak. Uh, he's worse gas, I'm going to assume. Uh, according to Google, when I looked this up, what did Taft do? Angry politics diminished appreciation for Taft's many achievements. He signed the first tariff revision since 1897, established a postal saving system, formed the Interstate Commerce Commission, and prosecuted over 75 antitrust violations, far more than pursued by the trust buster Theodore Roosevelt. This is according to Google. He also was in the Supreme Court after his presidency. He died at 72 in 1930 and had to be buried in a piano box. It's a big dude. Is that for real? Yeah, he had to be buried in a fucking piano box. Dude, I, I'm sorry. I can't regulate my F-bombs. Um, I'm anti-regulation on the F-bombs tonight. They're just going to have to fly. Dude, yeah, he was he was that big. So, I mean, I'll post a picture of it. Follow our Instagram. Dude was big. And, uh... Yeah, I mean, like I said, Roosevelt liked him during the time where I, we kind of sidetracked. We we veered the carriage to the to the side side of the road for a little while to talk about Taft, but I just can't help it. I I don't know if I ever want to do an episode on him. Maybe when we get to like the the high three hundreds area of episodes, sure, I'll, I'll circle back around to Taft. But I just he's more of a Roosevelt side player. Also, at the end of this episode, I want to see who we would cast as all the main characters uh, in a in a Roosevelt movie. Time to talk about the coal strike, 1902, also known as the anti uh, anth- 
anthracite coal strike. It was a strike by the United Mine Workers of America in the anthracite coal fields of eastern Pennsylvania. Miners struck for higher wagers, wage, wagers, wages, shorter workdays, and the recognition of their union. Uh, this isn't a political show, but I would say unions are a good thing, personally. Uh, they fight for wages and benefits and hopefully don't allow the higher-ups to make you work 12-hour days unless you volunteer. Um, the strike threatened to shut down the winter fuel supply to major American cities. At that time, residences were typically heated with anthracite or with anthracite or hard coal, which produces higher heat value and less smoke than soft or bitumen bituminous bituminous coal. Bituminous. Bituminous coal. Still can't say words. Uh, the strike never resumed as the miners received a 10% wage increase and reduced workdays from 10 to 9 hours. The owners got a higher price for coal and did not recognize the trade union as a bargaining agent. It was the first labor dispute in which the U.S. federal government and President Theodore Roosevelt intervened as a neutral arbitrator. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah. Um, it, the coal strike took time at a place, uh, or at a time when it was, uh, moving into fall and winter. Mm -hmm. And so, um, trying to think back to the, one of the documentaries that I watched, but basically it started around like June and it, it started to drag into late fall before Teddy, uh, was able to kind of bring the union reps and the coal miners to a settlement but people were getting really worried because at the time that was how they you know that's how they heated their homes that's how they ran things you know uh, mm -hmm. coal was everything <clears throat> it's like if there was a fuel uh, a fuel shortage now like gasoline um or diesel um it just shuts things down so the the coal miners being on strike it just had the whole country everybody was affected by it so um <clears throat> Apparently, uh, Teddy would, you talked about the press earlier in the media, Teddy would use the media to like leak things. He would, he would talk to the union reps and, and the, uh, businesses, uh, in private. <clears throat> and then he would like leak things to the press and he would basically get, try to get the public on the, uh, coal miner, uh, on the strikers side. And, um, finally, I guess, you know, the, the uh, coal mine owners felt threatened enough to where they came to an agreement. And um, I think like even JP Morgan was involved because mm -hmm. um, he Rockefeller. Yeah. Cause like they own the coal mines. Um, right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's uh it was a big victory for Teddy, right. You know, basically a year, year and a half into the, and it was uh, actually it wasn't even a year and a half it was about a a year or so into his presidency yeah and it, and it was it, i i think it shows him kind of playing the field similar to, to our revolutionary war to say how franklin 
was playing the side for the colonists with the French, um, and the French being kind of like the bureauc- the the corporate overlords, the coal miner guys, and kind of the way he would play the public, the press, and the corporations to the public's interest and say the way Franklin would play the role of the uh, American ambassador to the French. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a big connection with the coal strike um, going back to when uh, Teddy was an assemblyman in New York State. And there we didn't get to it in the first episode, but we... Um, we alluded to he was a New York State Assemblyman, but during his time, he uh, worked on a cigar reform bill. Uh, back in New York City, during those times, cigars were just made in like sweatshops and the labor conditions were horrible. And, you know, entire families were getting paid like a dollar a day to roll cigars. <clears throat> and he personally went to the, to like these houses, apartments where they were rolling cigars and he saw how abysmal the conditions were. And I think he had the same level of empathy for the coal workers, the coal miners, um, just abysmal conditions. And in the assembly, he got his uh, bill passed, the cigar reform bill, and the, you know, the coal strike came to an end and he had a hand in both. And I think, I think just the conditions in which the workers were in, um, it went against his, basically his, his class his his uh you know rich class it was his moralist ideals too like he i i like to think that overall in this country we have we hopefully when we make decisions when we look to seek the best outcome we want the best outcome for the greater good for the overall you know it's like kind of the mindset of like yeah we we fight it these in these wars or we pass these laws hopefully for our children and our children's children to have the the best long-term outcome you know i and, believe the word for that i could be wrong this might be another correction but no egalitarian okay yeah yeah, yeah. Egal- egalitarian is like i, I believe it's uh, the greater good yeah, and I think I think it 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 found it founded his personality, especially after reading that that book that I did. Um, it, it you know when it came to his conservation efforts and the way that he handled the decisions that he made, but it also kind of stems back to how he was as a father, which we're going to get into now, because obviously when he went into the White House. One of the first things that his wife, Edith, really wanted to do was remodel the White House. I mean, it had been 80 years since somebody had, like, completely taken care of. I mean, there were there was, like, spotty workmanship, you know, holes in places there shouldn't be. It looked old. It felt, you know, kind of creepy, I'm sure. And uh, so... Basically, he got that to pass in Congress, and she was happy, and you got to make the first wife happy. He also actually was the one that changed the name of the, it wasn't the People's House, it was now the White House, and part of that was, 
you know, it wasn't going to be, there was going to be secret service or some sort of people to guard him because after three assassinations, I mean, and him being number 26, I mean, that's, you know, a, a small but decent percentage of presidents getting killed. So, uh, but he was like, this is the White House, you know, this is the, where the president resides and presides. And she revamped it and made it more comfortable for him, his wife, and their six kids. And according to NPS.gov or the National Park Service.gov, Theodore Roosevelt began his presidency in 1901 along with six children and more animals than the White House had ever seen. The Roosevelt's children family of pets included a small bear named Jonathan Edwards, a lizard named Bill, guinea pigs named Admiral Dewey, Dr. Johnson, Bishop Doan, Fighting Bob Evans, and Father O'Grady, Maud the pig, Josiah the badger, Eli Yale the blue macaw, Baron Spreckle the hen, a one-legged rooster, a hyena, a barn owl, Peter the rabbit, an Algonquin the pony. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, this is a zoo. Where the hell did you get that list? It's from the National Park Service, dude. Like, oh, duh, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's fine. (laughs) I'm an idiot. No, I love you. (laughs) President Roosevelt loved the pets as much as his children did. Algonquin was so beloved. Algonquin was the pony. Was so beloved that when the president's son Archie was sick in bed, his brothers Kermit and Quentin brought the pony up to his room in the elevator. But Algonquin was so captivated by his own reflection in the elevator mirror that it was almost impossible to get him out. <laughs> you imagine that? Ah, oh, bully! The fucking horse is trapped in the elevator again. He's gonna spray fucking shit everywhere. At least Taft will feel at home. Um. Quentin once stopped in a pet store and bought four snakes. He then went to show them to his father in the Oval Office, where the president was holding an important meeting. Senators and party officials smiled tolerantly when the boy barged in and hugged his father, but when Quentin dropped the snakes on the table, the officials scrambled for safety. (laughs) I mean, you want to show how fucking boring these guys are just throw some snakes in there teddy's just like oh i want to mention too one of the cabinet members was remarking because teddy would play hide and seek with his kids and he always always said that if he was gonna if they if he was gonna be playing hide and seek he had to be it and one of the one of his cabinet mentioned uh to to the uh it was it was either between him and another or Edith but I know Edith was in within listening distance because she was always keeping an eye on Teddy which was good because he as the cabinet me- member remarked he said I believe the president is 6 as in 6 years old and he was a kid at heart. He always wanted to be like that. Like in, in matters when it came to, to being a father, he wanted to be 
just like them, you know? He loved these animals. And that kind of innocence and joy is part of what I think people loved, you know? Like his his interest, his fascination, his imagination, his his loving nature. And he would put as much emphasis into being a father as he did being the president. Although, it, we'll get to Alice. Alice, his, his sev- when she was 17, when he got put as president, she became the f- first icon for, uh, uh, like, American celebrity of the time. Like, I mean, we're talking pre, like, major Hollywood starlets. There was a there was a song in the radio, and we talked about this when we did. I did an episode on presidential family members with uh, Michael from Video Game Apocalypse, and we talked about Alice and kind of how so sensationalized she was. Definitely see listen to that episode because it's a good supplement to this one. Yeah, she was she was a handful, and, and you mentioned cigars. She would literally smoke cigars in front of these these politicians, and like there were like suitors coming by, and he Teddy was just like, Phew. but he called her baby Lee because she reminded him of his first wife, and he could never muster up the strength to call her Alice, even later, like towards the end of his life. But you've got these kids running around, hide-and-go-seek. You've got snakes in the White House. You've got badgers and macaws and a pony in the elevator. And you got Taft taking dumps in the White House bathroom. I mean, this was a crazy... This was a zoo. Meanwhile, the world is just crazy. I mean, we're pre-World War I. Economy's fluctuating. There's there's Wild West. There's everything. <laughs> it's it's a crazy time. There's a crazy time, and there's meanwhile there's just Teddy with his spectacles and his big old grin. Alice, like I said, Quentin's sister also had a pet garter snake that she named Emily Spinach because it was as green as spinach and as thin as. Her Aunt Emily. The Roosevelts were dog lovers as well. Among their many canines were Sailor Boy, the Chesapeake Retriever, Jack the Terrier, Skip the Mongrel, and Pete, a bull terrier, who sank his teeth into so many legs that he had to be exiled to the Roosevelts' home in Long Island. Alice had a small black Pekingese named Manchu, which she received from the last empress of China during a trip to the Far East. Alice once claimed to have seen Manchu dancing on its hind legs in the moonlight on the White House lawn. And that's been your pet series. <laughs> we just Presidential kinda... pet series. I mean... That's a lot of fucking pets, man. That's a lot of animals. It is. Biden's dog is... Uh, isn't he biting everybody? I'm sure there's been been shit in the news about uh, what's his name? Sergeant or something. I, you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't really think I've seen too much about Biden's dog. I I don't know. It's a German shepherd. I don't know. It's been biting secret service left and right. Apparently. Well, Hey, 
Could you imagine that many animals in the White House now, like CNN, uh, Fox? They'd all be trying to do their, uh, you know, the press brief or whatever. And, then, and there'd just be like fucking horses and zebras in the background and chimpanzees just like stealing microphones. <laughs> ook, ook. We got a runner. He grabbed the, he grabbed the White House press microphone. Ook, ook. And just like flinging like papers around and shit. There's just random excrement everywhere and f- pee and you know i can't imagine what the what it smelled like it's probably terrible but i love animals so this just really endears me more to teddy but now we got to talk about more political things during roosevelt's second year in office it was discovered there was corruption in the indian service the land office and the post office department shame mailmen and male women Roosevelt investigated and prosecuted corrupt Indian agents who had cheated the Creeks and various Native American tribes out of land parcels. Land fraud and speculation was found involving Oregon federal timberlands. In November 1902, Roosevelt and Secretary Ethan A. Hitchcock forced Binger Herman, the general land office commissioner, to resign from office. On November 6, 1903, Francis J. Henney was appointed special prosecutor and obtained 146 indictments involving an Oregon land office bribery ring. U.S. Senator John H. Mitchell was indicted for bribery to expedite illegal land patents, found guilty in July 1905, and sentenced to six months in prison. More corruption was found in the Postal Department that brought on the indictments of 44 government employees on charges of bribery and fraud. Historians generally agree that Roosevelt moved quickly and decisively to prosecute misconduct in his administration. When you mentioned the coal mines, but the railroad, uh, also merchants complained that some railroad rates were too high. In 1906, in the 1906 Hepburn Act, Roosevelt sought to give the Interstate Commerce Commission the power to regulate rates, but the Senate, led by conservative Nelson Aldrich, fought back. Roosevelt worked with the Democratic Senator Benjamin Tillman to pass the bill. Roosevelt Roosevelt and Aldrich ultimately reached a compromise that gave the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission, the power to replace existing rates with just and reasonable maximum rates, but allowed railroads to appeal to the federal courts on what was reasonable. In addition to rate setting, the Hepburn Act also granted the ICC regulatory power over pipeline fees, storage contracts, and several other aspects of railroad operations. So, I mean... Other than carriages and like early, early, early automobiles, railroads were really a, a big way to get by. And full disclosure and fun fact, my grandfather actually worked for the railroads. There's a picture of him with the choo-choo. And if you're lucky, I'll post Rad Dead 1923 or whatever he was on the Instagram, if you're curious. But... Pure food and drugs. Now, we we brought this up with the meat being bad, but Roosevelt responded to public anger over the abuses in the food packing industry by pushing Congress to pass the Meat Inspection Act of 1906 and the Pure Food and Drug Act. Though conservatives initially opposed this bill, probably because they were making a shit ton of money, 
Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, published in 1906, helped galvanize support for reform. The Meat Inspection Act of 1906 banned misleading labels and preservatives that contained harmful chemicals. Now, Upton Sinclair was kind of, I mean, he, they, he, was, he was dubbed a muckraker, and ma- mainly these guys that would write these salacious articles of the time were considered muckrakers by politicians and especially even Teddy. Like, he didn't really like these type of guys, and I get it. They kind of like, mm, mm, this is a this is unjust. What they're doing? I'm gonna write an I'm gonna write an article. You know, um, kind of the whiny people. Uh, because he was an action, get it done, not just pout about it in the news. Um, Is that like a Yelp reviewer or something? I mean, that's kind of how. I guess that I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a modern way to explain how people back then would have thought of it. If you get my drift, like he just, you know, news. News was news and. Important news was important news, but people pouting about things being bad in Roosevelt's mind was more of like, "We'll fucking fix it." You know what I mean? Um, right. But this was this is how you do that. You know, you write a book about you because Upton Sinclair basically went undercover working for a meatpacking place and then wrote a book and was like, "It was terrible. There were body parts and fucking rats fucking your burger meat." And that was a big deal, obviously. So when that book came out, initially it was like, oh, great. Somebody's complaining about people I have to, like, you know, who are trying to get me to represent them. But now I've got to figure this out. So the Pure Food and Drug Act banned food and drugs that were impure or falsely labeled from being made, sold, and shipped. Good on you, Roosevelt. We need that sort of stuff. We don't need people dying from this. I mean, there's a whole episode I can do on what happened to a badly laced Tylenol. You know, pain relievers have killed more people than I can even count. And that we even know of. There's no statistics to those type of things because people just, bad shit goes out there. And Yeah, but Jim, back then, you know how bad it was, though? Like, they would, like, spoiled meat. They would inject with food coloring to make it look fresh and then sell it. Of course. Yeah. People, no. Workers' fingers and hands are getting chopped off and getting ground up with the burgers. Like, and people are, you know, the end consumers eating somebody's fingernail. Like, that's nasty. Oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> and you know what? There are people out there who willingly eat their own fingernails and boogers. I get it. You're gross. Knock it off. Have a Coke. A sandwich. Make those ingredients fresh. But I appreciate that he did this back then. Roosevelt also served as honorary president of the American School Hygiene Association from 1907 to 1908. And in 1909, he convened the first White House conference on the care of dependent children. Well, let's talk about his conservation. Roosevelt driving through a sequoia tree tunnel. Uh, so there is this great image of Roosevelt driving through a sequoia tree tunnel. I left a note. I'm going to post that on our Instagram. Of all Roosevelt's achievements, he was proudest of his work in the conservation of natural resources and extending federal protection to land and wildlife. 
Roosevelt worked closely with Interior Secretary James Rudolph Garfield and Chief of the U.S. Forest Service Gifford Pinchot to enact a series of conservation programs that often met with resistance from Western members of Congress, such as Charles William Fulton. Nonetheless, Roosevelt established the United States Forest Service, signed into law the creation of of five national parks, and signed the 1906 Antiquities Act, under which he proclaimed 18 new U.S. national monuments. He also established the first 51 bird reserves, four game preserves, and 150 national forests. The area of the U.S. that he placed under public protection totals approximately 230 million acres. God damn. In part due to his dedication to conservation, Roosevelt was voted in as the first honorary member of the Campfire Club of America. Roosevelt extensively used executive orders on a number of occasions to protect forest and wildlife lands during his tenure as president. By the end of his second term in office, Roosevelt used executive orders to establish 150 million acres of reserved forestry land. Roosevelt was unapologetic about his extensive use of executive executive orders to protect the environment, despite the perception in Congress that he was encroaching on too many lands. Eventually, Senator Charles Fulton Republican from Oregon attached an amendment to an agricultural appropriations bill that effectively prevented the president from reserving any further land. Before signing that bill into law, Roosevelt used executive orders to establish an additional 21 forest reserves, (laughs) waiting until the last minute to sign the bill into law. In total, Roosevelt used executive orders to establish 121 forest reserves in 31 states. Prior to Roosevelt, only one president, one, had issued over 200 executive orders, Grover Cleveland. The first 25 presidents issued a total of 1,262 executive orders. Roosevelt issued 1,081. Damn. It's a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, the guy had a zoo. He loved animals. We'll get to the Amazon. We'll get to his Africa trip after his presidency. But, like, he saw, and and this is kind of an early thing that I'll say about the Amazon trip. I mean, that is an area that was so mysterious, but also not so well guarded from the machinations of like the agriculture like machinery the you know the industrialists the guys that were going to go out there to haul timber and you know monopolize what resources were there you know the amazon is a is a crazy scary place but it's also not guarded like our forests and streams are and i'll i'll say this early man in honor of teddy if, if you feel any appreciation of the America you live in or the America of past, go to your local national parks, your forests, sit under a tree, eat an apple, you know? I'm just going to say that. In 1907, Roosevelt faced the greatest domestic economic crisis since the Panic of 1893. Wall Street stock market entered a slump in early 1907. And many investors blamed Roosevelt's regulatory policies for the decline in stock prices. 
Roosevelt helped calm the crisis by meeting on November 4th, 1907 with the leaders of U.S. Steel and approving their plan to purchase a Tennessee steel company near bankruptcy. Its failure would ruin a major New York bank. He thus approved the growth of one of the largest and most hated trusts while the public announcement calmed the markets. Sometimes to do good, you got to shake hands with the devils or the devil. Do you have anything you want to say about his conservation before we keep going? I know I'm in the stock market collapse 1907-ish. Yeah, I didn't get too much into the stock market stuff. Um, yeah, I did I did read quite a bit about the land conservation uh, during his second term and whatnot. And you, you pretty much covered much of it, uh, most of it. Um, I think the big thing to note, though, is that uh, many of the many of the areas that he conserved was native land and going back i know we've been praising teddy a lot but there was a lot of uh uh, bad vibe bad bad sentiment with him and native americans and going back to his time in the badlands and i'm sure you came across it but um, yeah yeah much of the 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 land that, that that he was using these executive orders to basically you know preserve it's commendable but at the same time a lot of it was native land and, right. uh, but yeah. how do you how do you go? I mean, what's the lesser of two evils in that predicament? You know, if if you're, is it take the land and make it protected, or give it to the Native Americans? And how are we going to police that? You know what I'm saying? Like, what happens when some French asshole named the Marquis de Bibliotech comes across and says, "Like, I'll give you so many baguettes and rolls of cheese," and then the Native Americans are like, "You're a silly, white-ish-looking man. I will take this cheese. Here's some corn." And then he monopolizes their territory. You know what I'm saying? Like, there, there would have been. I, I feel like the lesser is to just protect it and some sort of federal enforcement so that nobody can take it and it can be preserved. But I, I don't know, you know, obviously there's great injustices done to the native Americans either way. So I don't know. Yeah, no, it's a tough, it's a tough situation. I I didn't mean to throw us off there, but no, 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 no. I'm glad that you mentioned, I mean, these are tough things. These are tough situations all around. I mean, everything, even even the Spanish-American War, there's, depending on how you look at it, you could also say those type of, of leanings go against the Monroe Doctrine and lead to us entering the First World War regardless. You know, this is all, everything leads in a domino to even shit that's going to lead up to more modern stuff that we're dealing with today um again it's it's i i try to look at it as like i'm grateful overall as an american and i appreciate the sentiment and the way that it has gone for the most part but there is always a way to look at it and say, what the fuck? And I get that. 
Roosevelt exploded in anger at the super rich for the economic malfeasance when it came to this 1907 crash, calling them malefactors of great wealth in a, a major speech in August entitled The Puritan Spirit and the Regulation of Corporations. Trying to restore confidence, he blamed the crisis primarily on Europe, but then all, after saluting the unbending restitute of the Puritans, he went on, quote, It may well be that the determination of the government to punish certain malefactors of great wealth has been reasonable for something of the trouble, at least to the extent of having caused these men to combine to bring about as much financial stress as possible in order to discredit the policy of the government and thereby secure a reversal of that policy so that they may enjoy unmolested the fruits of their own evil doing. Regarding the very wealthy, Roosevelt privately scorned the entire unfitness to govern the, govern the country and the lasting damage they do by much of what they think are the legitimate big business operations of the day. He wasn't very happy with these guys. Roosevelt's rhetoric was characterized by an intense moralism of personal righteousness. The tone was typified by his denunciation of predatory wealth. In a message he sent Congress in January 1908 calling for passage of new labor laws. Predatory wealth, as he wrote, of the wealth acu of the wealth acu accumulated on a giant scale by all forms of inquity ranging from the oppression of wage workers to unfair and unwholesome methods of crushing out competition and to defrauding the public by stock jobbing and manipulation of securities. Certain wealthy men of this stamp whose conduct should be abhorrent to every man of ordinarily decent conscience and who commit the hideous wrong of teaching our young men that phenomenal business success must ordinarily be based on dishonesty have during the last few months made it apparent that they have banded together to work for a reaction. Their endeavor is to overthrow and discredit all who honestly administer the law to prevent any additional legislation which would work, would check and restrain them and to secure, if possible, a freedom from all restraint which will permit every unscrupulous wrongdoer to do what he wishes unchecked provided he has enough money. The methods by which the Standard Oil people and those engaged in the other combinations of which I have spoken above have achieved great fortunes can only be justified by the advocacy of a system of morality which would also justify every form of criminality on the part of a labor union and every form of violence, corruption, and fraud from murder to bribery and ballot box stuffing and politics. See, even then they had ballot box stuffing. So this was just a time where, and we're going to discuss some key points during his presidency now as we kind of wrap up that era of his life. He actually stumbled to the press at one point and said that he would not seek re-electment, re being re-elected. And it was 
the foible that he made saying that that he would come to regret completely. I think at the time he said it thinking like, well, you know, I'll go in, I'll do what I I find fit, and I won't take up. I, I think it was kind of like him trying to be almost humble and not seem like overly possessive or like like I said he he saw his favorite president was Lincoln and I think he didn't want to seem like he was some monarch or some like dictator at all he wanted to 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 get in and get things done and I heard some 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 someone discussing Teddy online basically saying that he didn't like being completely in charge or being the guy the figurehead he wanted to be the guy getting things done or the second in charge if you will um now granted he didn't like being vp because he just there was it was enough to him it was a nothing position he just wanted to be the guy that got things done and got things done for the better after his presidency he did seek to be president again but do you have anything you want to add to his presidency well just to address what you're saying right now yeah i mean i think he was just trying to fall in line with tradition up to that point um you know nobody serves more than two terms he served you know about one and three quarters yeah Yeah, one and a half maybe and so I think he was just kind of trying to keep with tradition as far as just doing the two terms. But then again, you know, he did regret saying that he wasn't going to run uh, for his would have would have been his third term. And then there was even talk about um, him running in the later like 1916, 1920 races. Right. Um, so he never got around to it. But uh yeah, as far as presidency goes, I mean, the only thing I think we need to uh, maybe briefly touch on is the Panama Canal. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, that was a big deal uh, strategically for the Navy. Um, being able to n- avoid basically going around the entirety of the South American continent, they could now cut right straight through Central America. And so... <clears throat> This was in his first, uh, his first term. It was 1904, um, and basically, what happened was there was a, a, there was sort of a revolt from the Panamanians um, against the Colombians, and they declared their independence from Colombia. And <clears throat> this literally, it, it seems like it happened overnight, but. Panama declared their independence and Teddy jumped on it immediately and said, we recognize Panama as an independent nation and they've already agreed to uh, these terms so we can dig a canal through this little stretch of land. And um, The French it a, it, did attempt to try to construct a canal there. Um, it, yeah, you're there, right. There were a few different attempts, but you're right. When uh, at the time... Uh, the U.S. intentions to influence the area were seen as like bad, but I mean, you're talking about um, 
so on January 22nd, 1903, the Hay-Heron Treaty was signed by the U.S. Secretary of State John M. Hay and Colombian charged Dr. Thomas Haran for $10 million and an annual payment. It would have granted the U.S. a renewable lease in perpetuity from Colombia on the land proposed for the canal. The treaty was ratified by the U.S. Senate on March 14, 1903, but the Senate of Colombia did not ratify it. And Buna Varela told President Theo, Theodore Roosevelt and Hay of a possible revolt, revolt by the Panamanian re- rebels who aimed to separate from Colombia and hoped that the U.S. would support the rebels with U.S. troops and money. Roosevelt changed tactics based in part on the Malarino Bidlack Treaty of 1846 and actively supported the separation of Panama from Colombia. Shortly after recognizing Panama, he signed a treaty with the new Panamanian government under terms similar to the Hay-Heron Treaty. On November 2, 1903, U.S. warships blocked sea lanes against possible Colombian troop movements en route to put down the Panama Rebellion. Panama declared independence on November 3, 1903. The U.S. quickly recognized the new nation this happened so quickly that by the time the Colombian government and Bogota launched a response to the Panamanian uprising, U.S. troops had already entered the rebelling province. The Colombian troops dispatched to Panama were hastily assembled conscripts with little training. While these conscripts may have been able to defeat the Panamanian rebels, excuse me, they would not have been able to defeat the U.S. Army troops that were supporting. The reason an army of conscripts were sent, was sent was that it was the best response the Colombians could muster, as Colombia still was recovering from a civil war between liberals and conservatives from October 1899 to November. 1902, 1902 known as the Thousand Days War, with the U.S. being fully aware of these conditions and even incorporating them into the planning of the Panama intervention as the U.S. acted as an arbitrator between the two sides, with the peace treaty that ended the Thousand Days War being signed on the USS Wisconsin on November 21, 1902, while in port, the U.S. also brought engineering teams to Panama with the peace delegation to begin planning for the canal's construction before the U.S. had even gained the rights to build the canal. All these factors would result in the Colombians being unable to put down the Panamanian re- rebellion and expel the U.S. troops occupying what today is the independent nation of Panama. And so on November 6, 1903, uh, Philip... Bunoa Varilla, as Panama's ambassador to the U.S., signed the Hay Bunoa Varilla Treaty, granting rights to the U.S. to build and indefinitely administer the Panama Canal Zone and its defenses. Yeah, so that was like overnight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, like the, the Independence Declaration, and then and then basically saying, "Yeah, build your canal." Uh, yeah, it's just wild. Uh, and still to this day, uh, huge, hugely strategic, uh, important canal. You know, totally. There's, there's, there's some good canals out there that are, uh, that, you know, that are strategically important. I live right next to the Erie Canal, which yep. going back to the 1800s was huge as far as <clears throat> connecting. You know, New York City and the Atlantic Ocean to inward ports all the way over to your neck of the woods. Right. Up in, you know, Lake Michigan, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, 
Um, the Erie Canal now is pretty funny looking. It's not really meant for uh, steamboats anymore, <laughs> carrying, carrying French and English goods. <laughs> Just but. a lot of a lot of Michigan boats <laughs> with U of M banners and lowrider playing in the canals. <laughs> uh, President Roosevelt famously stated, "Quote." I took the isthmus, started the canal, and then left Congress not to debate the canal, but to debate me. <laughs> Delightful. Bully that. <laughs> yeah, he was long gone by the time they finished that, though. What was it, like 1914, I think they finished it? Something like, well, but he did, he did travel down there at some point. He was the first president to travel internationally. Fun fact. Post-presidency, Roosevelt enjoyed being president and was still relatively youthful, but felt that a limited number of terms provided a check against dictatorship. Roosevelt ultimately decided to stick to his 1904 pledge not to run for a third term. He personally favored Secretary of State Root as his successor, but Root's ill health made him an unsuitable candidate. New York Governor Charles Evan Hughes loomed as a potential strong candidate and shared Roosevelt's progressivism, but Roosevelt disliked him and considered him to be too independent. Instead, Roosevelt settled on his Secretary of War, William Howard Taft. The bison has entered the building who had ably served under Presidents Harrison, McKinley, and Roosevelt in various positions. Roosevelt and Taft had been friends since 1890, and Taft had consistently supported President Roosevelt's policies. Roosevelt liked him in discussion, in debate, but just didn't like him in the seat of the president. He, he, It was too hard for him to walk that line of having to be defend against and for positions if, if that makes any sense Roosevelt yeah. what's that no I was just agreeing with you totally I totally agree, I agree with me every day um that was Casey <laughs> yeah she does she's <laughs> texting me right now uh, President Roosevelt's policies. Roosevelt was determined to install the successor of his choice and wrote the following to Taft. Dear Will, do you want any action about those federal officials? I will break their necks with the utmost cheerfulness if you say the word! Exclamation <laughs> point. This guy, he's still a cowboy. Just, just weeks later, he branded, he, uh, he branded as false and malicious the charge that he was using the offices at his disposal to favor Taft. At the 1908 Republican convention, many chanted four years more of a Roosevelt presidency, but Taft won the nomination after Henry Cabot Lodge made it clear that Roosevelt was not interested in a third term. And so Taft defeated the Democratic nominee, three-time candidate William Jennings Bryan. Taft promoted progressivism that stressed the rule of law. He preferred that judges rather than administrators or politicians make the basic decisions in, about fairness. Taft usually proved to be a less... In, uh, Taft usually proved to be a less adrift politician than Roosevelt and our adroit politician, sorry, not adrift, than Roosevelt, and lacked the energy and personal magnetism of Roosevelt, along with the publicity devices, which, I mean, you don't hear about Taft. I mean, 
<clears throat> it wasn't until I started re- researching Roosevelt that I even heard Taft brought up very often in discussion for anything. Taft ignored the risks and tackled the tariff boldly. So the Republican Party, when Roosevelt realized that lowering the tariff... So, okay, all right, so I'm sorry, I'm, I skipped something here. Um, Taft usually proved to be a less adroit politician than Roosevelt and lacked the energy and personal magnetism. This is, I must have taken this literally verbatim from the wiki, I apologize. Um, When Roosevelt realized that lowering the tariff would risk creating severe tensions inside the Republican Party by pitting producers, manufacturers, industrial workers, and farmers against merchants and consumers, he stopped talking about the issue. Taft ignored the risks and tackled the tariff boldly, encouraging reformers to fight for lower rates and then cutting deals with conservative leaders that kept overall rates high. The resulting Payne-Aldrich tariff of 1909 signed into law early in President Taft's tenure was too high for most reformers and Taft's handling of the tariff alienated all sides while the crisis was building inside the party. Roosevelt was touring Africa and Europe to allow Taft's space to be his own man. And anytime he saw stuff like this going on, Roosevelt was pissed because he just didn't like that Taft couldn't make decisions and stick to his guns. And I think ultimately Taft is what kind of got him in the mindset that he wanted to go back. In March 1909, the ex-president left the country for the Smithsonian Roosevelt African Expedition, a safari in East and Central Africa. Roosevelt's party landed in Mombasa, East Africa, now Kenya, and traveled to the Belgian Congo, now Democratic Republic of Congo, before following the Nile River into modern Sudan. Wealth financed by Andrew Carnegie and by his own writings, Roosevelt's large party hunted for specimens for the Smithsonian Institution and for the American Museum of Natural History in New York, man. The group, led by the hunter-tracker R.J. Cunningham, included scientists from the Smithsonian and was joined from time to time by Frederick Sellis, the famous big-game hunter and explorer. Can you imagine being on a hunt like this? No, we we. <laughs> I love the way. No, man. <laughs> no, we alluded to this in the last episode that I have a a problem with <clears throat> these types of African safari hunts. Well, they're well. It's not it's not a big problem of mine, but like I I read the list of uh, animals that he allegedly. Uh, killed for the Smithsonian, whatever the fuck they're going to taxidermy him and put him in museums, whatever. So I don't know if you have the list, but oh, allegedly. Oh. The team killed oh. or trapped 11,400 animals from insects and moles to hippopotamuses and elephants. The 1,000 large animals included 512 big game animals, including six rare white rhinos. Tons of salted carcasses and skins were shipped to Washington. It took years to mount them all, and the Smithsonian shared duplicate specimens with other museums. Regarding the large number of, of animals taken, Roosevelt said, I can be condemned only if the existence of the National Museum and the American Museum of Natural History and other similar zoological institutions are to be condemned. Yeah, I feel like he single-handedly like 
responsible for, you know, extinction of species on this African safari trip. It, you know, it's just, I, I don't like it. You know, Adam, Adam deer. walked, Adam would walk into the Smithsonian and pull an Ace Ventura to pet detective, just <laughs> screaming at the top of his lungs. This is a lovely room of death. <laughs> Uh, fun fact: I took a girl on a date in middle school to see that movie. She oh, kissed. She man, kissed what my a neck. Great fucking movie. I got a say what? Nothing. Nothing. No. I'm 89 no. cinemas, Plainwell, <laughs> Michigan. Uh, uh, no, but yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> African safari. Um, killed a lot of animals. They're probably still in some. I've been to many Smithsonian uh, museums, uh, and I've probably shit seen something that he shot yeah no i mean that's why he's in those night at the museum movies played by robin williams r.i.p future episode um i would have loved to see robin williams play teddy roosevelt in a in a biopic oh yeah he was the night at museum guy but yeah no Mm -hmm. like in a serious role you mean yeah oh yeah 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 Yeah, for sure williams could act his ass off yeah. After his safari, Roosevelt traveled north to embark on a tour of Europe, stopping first in Egypt. He commented favorably on British rule of the region, giving his opinion that Egypt was not yet ready for independence. He refused a meeting with the Pope due to a dispute over a group of Methodists active in Rome. He met with Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria-Hungary, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, King George V of Great Britain, and other European leaders. In Oslo, Norway, Roosevelt delivered a speech calling for limitations of naval armaments, a strengthening of the permanent court of arbitration, and the creation of a League of Peace among the world powers. It's like a pre-UN. He also delivered... What's that? No, it's just it's amazing how much this guy traveled. Yeah, um, back then, like in 1910, basically going from, you know, would you say Sudan or, or Kenya to Europe. Egypt, you know, all the way up to fucking what Norway? Come yeah, on. and Oslo, Germany, Oslo. Yeah, yeah, just crazy. <clears throat> he also delivered the Romans lecture of Oxford in which he denounced those who sought parallels between the evolution of animal life and the development of society. Though Roosevelt attempted to avoid domestic politics, he quietly met with Guilford Pinchot, who related his own disappointment with the Taft administration. Pinchot had been forced to resign as head of the Forest Service after clashing with Taft's Interior Secretary Richard Bollinger, who had prioritized development over conservation. Roosevelt returned to the U.S. in June of 1910, when he was shortly thereafter honored with a reception luncheon on the roof of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City, hosted by the Campfire Club of America, of which he was a member. When he came back, he was greeted with the greatest of like celebrations that the city and the that area could host. And actually, there's a picture of him with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, his nephew future president future episode fdr can i do that one? Oh, for sure totally in october 19 dude you're doing all the big history ones with me well i fdr is up there on my top president so i'm I, sure I, i'm yeah. sure and in and, and a fascinating guy too i'd and love I, to do a deep dive on him 
In October 1910, Roosevelt became the first U.S. president to fly in an airplane, staying aloft for four minutes in a Wright Brothers design craft near St. Louis. And this video I will post on our social media. It is great. He's just, like I said, they almost crashed the plane because he was waving so hard. <laughs> Guy was such an attention moment. With his teeth. Ah! <laughs> 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 hello, hello. Like, Mr. President, please. You're a bulky man. And he loved his casseroles. Edith actually said at one point, if there's anything this man has an addiction to, it's food. Now, as I said, he, being as progressive as he was, he was bound to clash with his party. Roosevelt had attempted to refashion Taft into a copy of himself, but he recoiled as Taft began to display his individuality. He was offended on election night when Taft indicated that his success had been possible not just through the efforts of Roosevelt, but also Taft's half-brother, Charles, who was probably also the size of half of Taft. Roosevelt was further alienated when Taft, intent on becoming his own man, did not consult him about cabinet appointments. Roosevelt and other progressives were ideologically dissatisfied over Taft's conservation policies and his handling of the tariff when he concentrated more power in the hands of conservative party leaders in Congress. Stanley Solvik argues that as President Taft abided by the goals and procedures of the square deal promoted by Roosevelt in his first term. The problem was that Roosevelt and the more radical progressives had moved on to more aggressive goals, such as curbing the judiciary, which Taft rejected. Regarding radicalism and liberalism, Roosevelt wrote a British friend in 1911, Fundamentally, it is the radical liberal with whom I sympathize. He is at least working toward the end for which I think we should all of us strive. And when he adds sanity and moderation to courage and enthusiasm for high ideals, he develops into the kind of statesman whom alone I can wholeheartedly support. I get it. Can we can we just define radical progressivism <laughs> at this point? <clears throat> because yeah, I'd like to make a point that the the what was considered radical progressivism in 1911 was child labor laws, was women women's suffrage, mm -hmm. was minimum wage, uh, eight hour workday. Uh, you know, it just things. It wasn't. That, it wasn't that his son Quentin wanted to identify as a zebra or anything. Like it was. It was. It was a difference. There was a huge difference, and I understand. And I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm literally just saying there. There weren't woke politics at this point. It was more about like, yeah, a woman should be able to have a job. A woman should be able to make money or, or be able to vote or fight for her country or or whatever. Well, that was woke politics in 1910. Right. That's what. That's what. Uh, William Howard DeSantis was going around saying, <laughs> "Gonna fuck that woke Teddy Roosevelt, dude. Chill the fuck out with your woke all the time." Bull Moose Party. Sorry, what? not to get into modern day politics. No, moving I, on. I get it. I get. Good. Well, let's let's discuss the Bull Moose Party. Once <laughs> his defeat at the Republican convention appeared probable, Roosevelt announced that he would. Quote, accept the progressive nomination on a progressive platform 
And he said, I shall fight to the end, win or lose. At the same time, Roosevelt prophetically said, my feelings is that the Democrats will probably win if they nominate a progressive. Roosevelt left the Republican Party and created the Progressive Party, structuring it as a permanent organization that would field complete tickets at the presidential and state level. The new party included many reformers, including Jane Addams. Although many Republican politicians had announced for Roosevelt before Taft won the nomination, he was stunned to discover that very few incumbent politicians followed him into the new party. The main exception was California, where the progressive faction took control of the Republican Party. Loyalty to the old party was a powerful factor for incumbents. Only five senators now supported Roosevelt. Roosevelt's daughter Alice had a White House marriage to Congressman Nicholas Longworth. Who represented Taft's base in Cincinnati? Roosevelt reassured him in 1912 that, of course, he had to endorse Taft. However, Alice was her father's biggest cheerleader. The public conflict between spouses ruined the marriage. On October 14, 1912, while arriving at a campaign event in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Roosevelt was shot from seven feet away in front of the Gilpatrick Hotel by a delusional saloon keeper named John Fleming Schrank, who believed that the ghost of assassinated President William McKinley had directed him to kill Roosevelt. <laughs> Not to laugh at that, but... <laughs> no, I, I think I threw you up because I was laughing on mute. <laughs> Uh, that's so funny. I, uh, it's not funny, but it, it's kind of funny. Um, just William McKinley's ghost following this guy around. Shoot, Teddy. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. Uh, he, he said William McKinley appeared in his dream <laughs> and said he must avenge his murder. Uh, Shrank believed that Teddy was responsible for McKinley's assassination, so... He began stalking him and basically following him around. He Teddy can't. was on the campaign trail. He was, yeah. you know, making speeches all over the country and shit, you know, trying to get the Bull Moose Party going. And yeah. This dude was following him around and then just shot him in Milwaukee because McKinley's ghost told him to. <laughs> this sounds like a, a, a job for the, <clears throat> the, the gang. Get Scooby-Doo and Shaggy and Velma and get him, get figure this one out the bullet lodged in his chest after penetrating his steel eyeglass case and passing through a 50 page thick single folded copy of the speech titled progressive cause greater than any individual which he was carrying in his jacket shrank was immediately disarmed by czech immigrant frank bukowski captured and might have been lynched had Roosevelt not shouted for Shrank to remain unharmed. Roosevelt assured the crowd he was all right, then ordered police to take charge of Shrank and to make sure no violence was done to him. As as an experienced hunter and anatomist, Roosevelt correctly concluded that since he was not coughing blood, the bullet had not reached his lung. He declined suggestions to go to the hospital immediately and instead delivered a 90-minute speech with blood seeping into his shirt. His opening comments to the gathered crowd were, Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. Wow. 
Guy had nuts. That's, that's pretty heavy, man. I, I mean that. Uh, you, I mean, you get shot right in the chest, right? It, so the bullet lodged in his rib cage, apparently, right? So yeah, yeah. That and then go and give a ninety-minute speech. I'm just saying. Could you do it? If you I got was scope shot, and I took you to uh, <laughs> urgent care. <laughs> I needed stitches. For for people who may not. I, you, you, if you're listening to the first one, you're listening to this one, and I've seen that people tend to love these history episodes. I don't know if I could do it. Could you? No, I'm not even going to pretend that I could. <clears throat> I mean, I feel like I'm kind of a tough guy, but I don't... Getting shot in the chest, yeah, it went through his steel glass case. I guess that was a thing back then. Heavy as shit carrying around your glasses case. I mean, considering uh, McKinley got shot and recovered and people like literally thought he was going to be fine, but then died. Like, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm going to say, Hey guys, we'll, 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 we'll reconvene. <laughs> we'll set this up again. I promise. Got to take care of this. There's a hole in me. Yeah. That's tough. I can't imagine any modern day president like getting shot and then going and doing like a speech. Uh, I can't well, I mean, either. Everybody who's running for fucking president is 95 years old. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, they are living longer these days, I guess. Holy shit! This so this Amazon trip, this 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 uh, this trip he took with his son Kermit. This is a big deal because specifically. This was his last chance, as he as was put in the old lion, the book that I read, that he said he could be a boy. A friend of Roosevelt's, John Augustine Zam, a professor at the University of Notre Dame, invited Roosevelt to help plan a research expe- expedition to South America. Now was the time to escape politics. To, to finance it, Roosevelt obtained support from the American Museum of Natural History in return for promising to bring back many new animal species, specimens. Roosevelt's popular book, Through the Brazilian Wilderness, describes his expedition into the Brazilian jungle in 1913 as a member of the Roosevelt Rondon Scientific Expedition, co-named after its leader, Brazilian explorer Candido Rondon. From... <clears throat> From everything that I read, this is one hell of a final go. Once yeah, dude. I, I not to cut you off, but no, I read about ahead. it and I looked at the I looked at the the Google map of um, at the time was called the River of Doubt, but now it's the Rose, Rio Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. This was fucking out there. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of development at the southern tip of it now, but like back a hundred years ago, I mean, this was way out. Like this is Amazon before Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Whatever the fuck that means. I mean, it... It's crazy. It, I... I, I mean, Roosevelt walked up Mount Cotadine. I mean, there, there's... There's... He he's known to do crazy shit. And obviously he was born with shabby lungs and asthma, but he persevered and he pushed himself. And that was per something that his father had kind of put into him to to just 
live, you know, to conquer these things. And it doesn't surprise me, but it, but like you said, when you look at it, it's like, Jesus Christ. Of course, the guy who gets shot and finishes his speech is going to be like, yeah, hey, uh, let me go do ayahuasca and, I don't know, do some nighttime skydiving while I'm at it. You know, it's like do, doing, do, doing crazy shit was always up this guy's sleeve. And so, yeah, of course. He he was a thrill seeker for sure. I mean, I think he, he lived his life on adrenaline rushes. For sure, he wants to. He he wanted to do shit constantly that like challenged his uh, mental capacity, his physical capacity. Uh, but anyway, go on, go on about the Brazilian expedition. No, I I appreciate everything you have to say, man. Once in South America, a new, far more ambitious goal was added to find the headwaters of the Rio de Vo- da Duvida, or River of Doubt, and trace it trace it north to the Madeira and thence to the Amazon River. It was later renamed Roosevelt River in honor of the former president. Roosevelt's crew consisted of his son, Kermit, which is cool, Colonel Rondon, naturalist George Crook, Sherry, Brazilian Lieutenant um, Lira, team physician Jose Cajazira, and 16 skilled paddlers and porters. Roosevelt also identified Leo Miller, uh, also from the American Museum of Natural History, Anthony Fiala, Frank Harper, and Jacob Sig as crew members. The initial expedition started somewhere tenuously on December 9th, 1913, at the height of the rainy season. The trip down the River of Doubt started on February 27th, 1914. During the trip down the river... Roosevelt suffered a minor leg wound after he jumped into the river to try to prevent two canoes from smashing against the rocks. I literally just had something like this happen with with my phone. I lost my phone. I have a new one. It was like a couple weeks ago. I was going kayaking with a friend. And just from that brief moment where I jumped into a river to flip my canoe back because I, like a dummy, was like looking up at the sky after it had rained... And then a, a branch just swiped into my chest and flipped my canoe <laughs> or kayak. I lost my phone. Yeah, this, of course, my dumbass. I flip in and I just scratched the shit out of my feet. I can't imagine just for the brief moment and him trying to stop with this guy being like 50s ish, big, bulky guy. The flesh wound. And, and jumping into the Amazon, obviously. The flesh wound he received, however, soon gave him tropical fever that resembled the malaria he had contracted while in Cuba 15 years earlier. So, you know, late 30s, early 40s, Cuban malaria just hangs on. And then he recontracts it. He gets a fever. He gets sick. And That's got to suck. Yeah. And because I mean, I, fevers fucking suck when you're in your bed and you have a, you know, ginger ale and a chicken noodle soup or something. <laughs> Imagine being, you know, in the Amazon or 500 miles in the middle of nowhere. No, you know, like no cover, just like 110 degrees air, 106 degree fever. Like that fucking sucks. Just sweating. But this guy, and and also, I mean, you got to remember too, he had that bullet lodged in his chest from the assassination attempt. And that, that bullet didn't get apart. that dude. 
also didn't get that bullet removed. His health it, worsened from the infection. So he got septic or something, didn't he? Yeah. The yeah. week in Roosevelt so great. This weakened Roosevelt so greatly that six weeks into the adventure, he had to be attended to day and night by the expedition's physician and his son, Kermit. And at that point, I mean, he like looked at him and he's like, leave me. I'd rather die out here in a, in a jungle that isn't going to get fucked with by the culture and die. I've lived nine lives at this point. I'm fine. I don't want to hinder the, the, the expedition at all. But, you know, and Kermit is like, dude, you're my dad. I, I, I love you, man. You know, like if it was my dad, I, I'm for sure I'm going to be like, I'll, if, it, if it breaks my back, I'll carry you. I'm not leaving you here. Plus, you're the, you're the ex-president, the, probably the most famous president in my lifetime and my dad. You're coming back. This expedition is named after you, you know. Yeah, I mean, Teddy wanted to be left out there. And Kermit was like, "If you if you die out here, we're carrying you out. So it's going to be more of a burden, right? Like we're taking care of you now. You're, you're alive. You're, you're able to do a little bit. But if you die, then we're carrying a dead body, you know, hundreds of miles out of the Amazon, you know, the Amazon rainforest. It's like more of a hassle. So fucking, let's go. And by the uh, so." Six weeks, he had to be attended to day and night with the uh, physician that was on the expedition in Kermit. By then, by that six weeks, he could not walk because of the infection in his injured leg. And an infirm, and he had there was a traffic accident that had happened too. Like there, all this stuff that had happened previous to this, like it all coalesced into this one moment where he basically like is on this final expedition and he's having to be taken care of. He set off on it. Like I'm a boy again. I'm on my adventure. I'm six years old, Teddy Roosevelt again. And then he's like, I think this, this is a defining moment really. Cause it was the moment that said, Hey, old man, sit down. Nature is wild. And you can be the president, you can be the king, you can be the monarch, you can you can say whatever you want, but when Mother Nature comes along, or when 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 God and in the spirit the spirit comes through you and says, "Hey, it's your time," you're done. You know, some at some point the the Thunderbird's got to get pulled to the side of the road, and it's got to be night time. Not that he died; he makes it through this, and he loses 50 pounds while he's out there. Colonel Rondon reduced the pace of the expedition to allow for his commission's map making and other geographical tax, tasks, which required regular stops to fix the expedition's position by sun-based survey. Upon Roosevelt's return to New York, friends and family were startled by his physical appearance and fatigue. Roosevelt r- wrote, perhaps prophetically, to a friend that the trip had cut his life short by 10 years. And for the rest of his remaining years, he would be plagued by flare-ups of malaria and leg inflammation so severe as to require surgery. Before Roosevelt had even completed his sea voyage home, critics raised doubts over his claims of exploring and navigated, navigating a completely uncharted river of over 625 miles. When he had recovered sufficiently, he addressed a standing room-only convention reorganized in D.C., 
Washington, D.C. by the National Geographic Society and satisfactorily defended his claims. Roosevelt returned to the United States in May 1914. Though he was outraged by the Wilson, he did not like Woodrow Wilson. At, I mean, he saw him as kind of an adversary, but he was... There was still some heat in him to say, like, maybe he's going to run, but, I mean, ultimately, he was... Like you said, he was put back 10 years by this trip. Um, when the First World War began in 1914, Roosevelt strongly supported the Allies and demanded a harsher policy against Germany, especially regarding submarine warfare, again with the Navy. Roosevelt angrily denounced the foreign policy of President Wilson, calling it a failure regarding the atrocities in Belgium and the violations of American rights. In 1916, while campaigning for Hughes, Roosevelt reportedly denounced Irish-Americans to German-Americans whom he described as unpatriotic, saying they put the interests of Ireland and Germany ahead of America's by supporting neutrality. He insisted that one had to be 100% American, not a hyphenated American, who juggled multiple loyalties. In March 1917, Congress gave Roosevelt the authority to raise a maximum of four divisions similar to the Rough Riders, and Major Frederick Russell Burnham was put in charge of both the general organization and recruitment. However, Woodrow Wilson announced to the press that he would not send Roosevelt and his volunteers to France, but instead would send an American expeditionary force under the command of General John J. Pershing. Roosevelt never forgave Wilson and quickly published The Foes of Our Own Household, an indictment of the sitting president. Roosevelt's youngest son, Quentin, a pilot with the American forces in France, was killed when shot down behind German lines on July 14, 1918, at the age of 20. It is said that Quentin's death distressed Roosevelt so much that he never recovered from his loss. That's hard. And he was so... And part of his campaigning at certain points and in his relations to the press was so vehemently for Americans joining the war effort and against Wilson being like part of his campaign was I didn't get us into war. And and meanwhile, Teddy being like the 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 taker of San Juan Hill and Kettle Hill was like so pro going Americans fighting and was and his sons did f fight in World War One, but you know after losing Alice, his dad, his mom, and then ultimately his youngest son. There's a part in the book where he's sitting on a bench and he just occasionally would have these moments. I mean, he was in so much pain during the last years of his life where he would just kind of thousand yards stare and he just said, they took Quince, you know. Like, there was deep, deep sorrowful pain at the end of his life. And specifically when I was reading it and really going through the documentary I sent you that I found on PBS... Um, man, the 90s was just a heyday of those documentaries. I fucking love those history documentaries that the History Channel would pump out. But specifically, there's just something so sad about somebody. And it, it happened to me, too, with Napoleon, where it's like they get to the end of their life. And, you know, to 
you know, I, I know we're all going to get to that point in our lives, but it's like, I just want to think that, like, think on the good days, you know, I understand we, we all tend to, to go into our shadows occasionally and look back and cringe, but, you know, I get it. You lose your youngest son, and, then, and I, I've often heard there's no worse pain than, than losing a child, and I get that. And uh, I think for a guy who spent his life with the pain of losing his first love and not even being able to call his oldest daughter by her name, but by baby Lee, losing Quincy or Quentin was kind of, kind of it. And at that point when he'd lived nine lives, as he said, yeah, you live long enough to die slowly in Sagamore. <laughs> Your house. I'm sorry. You, you have to laugh or else you cry, right? So, um, on the night of January 5th, 1919, Roosevelt suffered breathing problems after receiving treatment from his physician, Dr. George W. Fowler. He felt better and went to bed. Roosevelt's last words were, quote, Please put out the light, James, to his family servant, James E. Amos. Between 4 and 4.15 the next morning, Roosevelt died at the age of 60 in his sleep at Sagamore Hill after a blood clot detached from a vein and traveled to his lungs. I read that um, Edith, and she was constantly watching over him in Sagamore Hill. We should do a field trip out that way someday. Um, Sagamore Hill? Mm-hmm. And now I'm so like doing all the research for this and like reading that book. I'm like, I want to see him. You know, I want to see where dude was playing hide and seek. And well, that's the White House, but I, you know, like it would it would be interesting to go go check out some of these locations just to 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 know, having known all this these these stories. Because they would go home quite a bit too, and that they would vacation back to their home when they weren't at the White House or after he was president and all that. But um, upon receiving word of his his death, his son Archibald telegraphed his siblings, "Quote: The old line is dead." Woodrow Wilson's vice president, Thomas R. Marshall, said that, quote, death had to take Roosevelt sleeping, for if he had been awake, there would have been a fight. Following a private farewell service in the North Room at Sagamore Hill, a simple funeral was held at Christ Episcopal Church in Oyster Bay. Vice President Thomas R. Marshall, Charles Evans Hughes, Warren G. Harding, Henry Cabot Lodge, and William Howard Taft were among the mourners. The snow-covered procession route to Young's Memorial Cemetery was lined with spectators and a squad of mounted policemen who had ridden from New York City. Roosevelt was buried on a hillside overlooking Oyster Bay. And that's Teddy Roosevelt. Ba-bam! That's it? That's it. I do have a quote from him, but... um. I don't know. Do you have anything else to add to it there, my friend? Uh, no. The uh, the most goofy fact that I, I didn't know going into this was that uh, 
Teddy received the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. And I don't think that we touched on that in either episode, but... No, he, it, he yep, he did get a Nobel Peace Prize. You're right. Yeah, so I didn't know that. Um, you know, I know there's only a couple of presidents that have, uh, Obama being the last, obviously. Um, He's uh, one of the four presidents that was sculpted into Mount Rushmore. Yeah, of course. Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln... And Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, yeah, he had a he had a quote that I'll read here. That it's one of my favorites. The man in the arena. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or whether the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. T.R., Good dude. Overall, yeah. I, I I really I I I I understand if you disagree with his politics, but I think if you look at overall in his life, he is a grand American character and someone I I definitely enjoyed researching and I appreciate what I learned. Yeah, he's definitely one of the more interesting uh, presidents that I've researched in depth. Uh, just amazing, uh, front to back. I mean, the whole thing. And I think you said at the beginning we were going to talk about possibly a movie coming out, but yeah, I think there should be. If I mean, it absolutely should be a big blockbuster Hollywood Teddy Roosevelt movie. Totally. I know Leonardo DiCaprio was supposedly going to play Teddy Roosevelt, directed by Mar- Martin Scorsese. Marty Scorsese, the guy that did Goodfellas, Casino, and uh, Taxi Driver. Speaking of movies that sidebar influenced somebody to shoot a president <laughs> because he wanted to get Jodie Foster's attention, so it, some Hinkley shot. Reagan, but Ray, Ronald Reagan's a whole other episode. Our demeanors might change a little bit during that. <laughs> oh boy, Reaganomics. Anyways, um, that's been our episode, folks. We hope you enjoyed this two-parter. If you're on YouTube, please like, share, subscribe. You can see Adam's wearing his Syracuse shirt. Speaking of basketball. <laughs> Follow us on stuff. Send us an email, zanzizipodcast at gmail.com for episode suggestions. Actually, one of the best ways is to join the Discord, and there's a whole tab which says new episodes, suggestions. You can join us in the fight against the devil in Diablo 4. I uh, just got a Steam deck, so you might see me show up on Steam playing games, but that's for seven months dry and my 41st birthday which is tomorrow yeah man i was gonna uh 
I was going to tell you, happy birthday, dude. Thanks, August brother. August 3rd. That's right. <sighs> the old lion in Michigan is getting older. What's the plan? What are you doing? You want to tell the, the listeners on your podcast? What you I doing? Sure, it's fine. I Casey said she's going to get me dinner, and I, I don't really want to go anywhere. So I said, let's just order wings and fries. Maybe you watch order tur- watch 40. Tur- Watch Total Recall. <laughs> Total Recall is your favorite movie. That's true. I like I like schlocky shit, man. With that tinge of like quality, like Predator, Commando. Commando's kind of oh. dog shit, but Predator. Oh is awesome. come on, that's like one of my favorite childhood movies. Are you fucking kidding I know. me right now? Well, I'm also the guy that just went and saw the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and is giving it rave reviews. I love stuff like <clears throat> it doesn't have to be perfect. I just want to have a good time. That's all. Commando is so fucking awesome. It is awesome. You're right. <laughs> I, 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 I'm saying all of Arnold's movies are phenomenal. I. Though that era of movies specifically, like the eighties and nineties, I love that. That's like my sweet spot. So I I knew exactly where the Commando VHS was in the video store when we used to go down. My my mom would say pick out a movie or whatever, you know, way the way back, and we would get one movie to pick out, and I would always go, and it was either one of the two, Lethal Weapon two mm-hmm. or Commando. I knew where they both were. Free South Africa, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Free South Africa, you dumb son of a bitch. Yeah, you dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, fuck. We might have to do a, a movie series on Lethal Weapon. Let's do a rewatch. All right. Adam, you got anything you want to say? Shout out before we end this episode? Ah. Uh. Nah, man, I'm good. Shout out to my wife and my kid, maybe upstairs, probably sick of <laughs> listening to me through the ceiling uh, slash floor. Hi, uh, Daniel. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm good, man. Now, this was fun. Uh, if we do uh, FDR or whoever next, even a, a movie, music, football, get I me think back our, on here. I I'll think do our, some sort of. Yeah, you're coming back on. I think our next one is going to be the War of 1812. That was what we, we, were, we were suggested. Yeah, we can do more of eighteen twelve. Go back into uh, you know, who was uh, was that Madison? I think so. Was he, yeah, was he president during eighteen twelve? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I cannot be quoted on that though, because I'm not a historian, but I love history. That's no, been, that's right. I know I'm right. You're you're always right. Jefferson was third. He went to eighteen oh nine. Madison was right after him. Eighteen oh nine to. 1817. Did he do two terms? Fuck. Now I'm. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out before then. All right. We love you guys. We'll see you very soon on another episode. Have a great one. I am not leading this fight as a matter of aesthetic pleasure. I am leading because somebody must lead, or else the fight would not be made at all. I prefer to work with moderates, with rational conservatives, provided only that they do in good faith strive forward towards the light. But when they halt and turn their backs to the light, sit with the scorners on the seats of reaction, then I must part company with them. We, the people, cannot turn back. Our aim must be steady, wise from It would be well if our people would study the history of the system.